70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. My name is Yuri, and I've been listening to KBS World Radio's Japanese program since 2020. I've not been able to visit Korea for three years now due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and KBS World Radio has been a bridge between me and Korea during that time. What I like the most about it is that you can get the latest information that's not even available on the Internet yet. I also enjoy the YouTube live streams that started last year as I can communicate with the hosts in real time. Congratulations on the evolution from shortwave radio all the way to YouTube. Happy 70th birthday and I'll look forward to more fun shows down the road. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Tuesday, the 7th of March, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. President Yoon Suk-yeol has defended the plan to compensate victims of Japan's wartime forced labor, saying it looked to respect the positions of the victims while attempting to move the South Korea-Japan relationship forward. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Last week, the government announced plans for a new space agency. We look closer at the details of the plan and some of the controversies for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Touch Basin's Hole, we speak to the author of a new book on South Korea's feminist movement ahead of International Women's Day tomorrow. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. A day after the South Korean government announced its controversial plan to compensate the victims of Japan's wartime forced labor, President Yoon Suk-yeol made another statement defending the plan, stressing that there was the outcome of respecting the positions of the victims while considering the shared interests and future development of South Korea and Japan. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined by our KBS World Radio news editor, Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jungle. So as expected, this was a key subject highlighted during the uh, latest cabinet meeting. That is, of course, the wartime forced labor compensation plan. Can you tell us a bit more about what President Yoon Sung-yeo said? During Tuesday's cabinet meeting, Yoon said passed administrations and enacted special laws in 1974 and in 2007 to compensate the victims, and apparent implication that past payouts were also made through domestic funds. Repeating comments from his March 1st Independence Movement Day speech, Yoon referred to Japan as a past militaristic aggressor that has become a cooperative partner that shares universal values. Highlighting trade and people-to-people exchanges, he said trade with Japan makes up around 7% of the country's total volume, 
and the Japanese people named South Korea as a top travel destination amid eased COVID-19 rules. The president emphasized that Seoul-Tokyo future-oriented cooperation will help protect liberty, peace, and prosperity around the world, and he apparently urged officials to seek ways to establish relevant channels and reinforce exchanges between business leaders and young people. And President Yoon has reportedly said he bears full responsibility in regard to the controversy over what some critics call a humiliating diplomacy with Japan. A presidential official told Yonhap News on Tuesday that during a meeting with top aides on Monday, Yoon said he is responsible for all policies on diplomacy, national security and defense. And according to officials, Yoon was determined to normalize strained relations with Tokyo at an early date, even at the cost of his political prospects, be it... uh, slashing into his possible approving ratings as well. Meanwhile, Washington again welcomed Seoul's compensation plan, with the State Department calling America's relationship with its two key allies central to achieving a free and open Indo-Pacific region. Can you tell us more? Washington expressed hope that Seoul's compensation plan will lead to strengthened trilateral ties, and earlier U.S. President Joe Biden issued a statement praising the compensation announcement and the response by the Foreign Ministry of Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida for marking a groundbreaking new chapter of cooperation and partnership between the two key U.S. allies. On the back of improved Seoul-Tokyo ties, President Yoon Suk-yeol is expected to focus on solidifying trilateral security cooperation. National Security Advisor Kim Jong-un is currently in Washington to fine-tune the details of his summit between Yoon and Biden as well. The South Korean leader is set to visit the U.S. in late April to mark the 70th anniversary of bilateral alliance. Talks are also underway for a potential visit to Japan by Yoon this month, the first by a South Korean president in four years, that will be. Analysts believe Yoon, Biden and Kishida could get together on the sidelines of the G7 meeting in Hiroshima in May. Let's turn now to the latest threats from North Korea. Kim Yajung, the powerful sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, said that North Korea is ready to take overwhelming action against the military activities of South Korea and the US. So what else did she say? Well, she issued the warning in a statement carried by the Korean Central News Agency on Tuesday, and noting that Pyongyang is closely watching Seoul and Washington's military activities, and that the regime is ready to act swiftly and overwhelmingly at any time, claiming the North's strategic weapons tests pose no risk to the safety of neighboring countries. Kim said a military response by the U.S. involving missile interception in waters or airspace outside its jurisdiction will be considered a declaration of war. She added the Allies should refrain from actions that further aggravate the situation. The warning comes amid increasingly frequent deployments of U.S. strategic assets to the peninsula. Most recently, an air drill over the West Sea on Monday that included the B-52H Stratofortress bomber. Meanwhile, South Korea's top intelligence agency believes North Korea could carry out a nuclear drill and launch a spy satellite and a solid-fuel intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, in the near future as well. That's right. In a briefing to a parliamentary committee on Tuesday, the National Intelligence Service said a large-scale exercise combining conventional and nuclear assets in an ICBM launch may take place in March or April. When South Korea and the U.S. are scheduled to hold joint springtime military exercise and a summit is expected, Kim Jong-un may order the launch of a recon satellite in April as well. The agency did not rule out a possible test firing of an ICBM with a shorter range but at a normal angle. The NIS is also confident, based on shared intel, that Kim's eldest son, eldest is a son actually, while the gender of his third child is still unconfirmed. On the regime's food shortages, the agency said an estimated 800,000 tons of rice are in short supply each year. 
Let's continue on to other headlines. A private education posted record highs for both spending and participation last year in the wake of the full lifting of social distancing rules. So can you give us uh, more details about these data, uh, these numbers? According to Statistics Korea, spending on private education stood at roughly 26 trillion won or some 20 billion US dollars in 2022. That's up nearly 11% on year, the largest posted since 2007 when the agency began making related announcements. The on-year growth is the second largest to be recorded since 2021. The agency estimated the average expenditure on private education per student across elementary, middle and high school came to 410,000 won per month last year. The biggest surge on elementary school at over 13% compared to 2021. More than 70% of students had taken part in private education last year, up 2.8 percentage points on year. And following this report, I understand the education sector has called for a complete overhaul in government policies related to that. Yes, in a Tuesday statement, the Korean Federation of Teachers Association said the latest figures clearly show existing policy measures uh, to address private education, such as after-school classes, are not providing, not proving to be effective. The group called for the ministry to acknowledge shortcomings and devise fundamental measures to improve education at schools. With the sharpest spike linked to elementary school students, the Korean Teachers and Education Workers Union said. This explains younger students were experiencing wider gaps in learning in the post-pandemic era. In other news, South Korea's per capita income in dollars decreased by nearly 8% last year on the back of the won's depreciation against the U.S. dollar. According to the Bank of Korea, on Tuesday, GNI per capita came to 32,661 U.S. dollars in 2022, down 7.7% on year. The BOK attributed the fall in the dollar value of GNI per capita to a rise in the exchange rate, which soared an annual average of 12.9%. The fall means South Korea's GNI per capita came behind Taiwan's for the first time in 20 years. Taiwan recorded 33,000. 565. In terms of the local currency, the figure rose by 4.3% on year to over 42.2 million won. The country's real GDP expanded 2.6% in 2022, despite a contraction of 0.4% in Q4. Both figures matched the central bank's advance estimates provided in January. That's where we'll wrap it up for our news briefing today. Daniel, thank you for those updates. Thanks for having me. Last Thursday, the Ministry of Science and ICT announced plans for a special law to establish an independent aerospace administration. It's said to be the South Korean version of the U.S. National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or simply known as NASA. Although there is a long way ahead with the law still needing parliamentary approval, hopes are that the new space administration will lead South Korea's space projects and help leap the nation into a global space power. To tell us more, we have reporter Kan hyung from the Korea Herald joining us on the line now. Mr Kan, hello and thank you for your time today. Hello, thank you for having me. So tell us about the government's announcement from last week regarding the special law on a space agency that will soon be established. What does it stipulate? So let me just begin by how the law is so unique in that it plans to create a government body that we have never really seen in the public sector here in Korea in terms of 
It's autonomy and flexibility. So I've talked to the uh, preparatory office of the new space body at the Ministry of Science and ICT, and they said the name of the space body is tentatively called the Korea Space and Aeronautics Administration, so KSAA in short. But they did say the official name is not has not been confirmed yet, so it could change in the future. Now, to talk about the special law, the KSAA will set up a new governance system for the country's space policies, as uh, it brings all every space-related projects and decision-making processes that are currently spread out at the uh, Ministry of Science and ICT and the Ministry of Trade, Industry and Energy, and maybe even the Ministry of Defense. So that puts one body into all countries' space-related space decision-making mm. processes. So the law also puts the president as the chair of the National Space Committee instead of the prime minister as it is right now. And it shows uh, the country is putting more emphasis on where, it, where we are headed with the space industry. So what's the background behind this then? Why has the Yun sung administration uh, put such emphasis uh, on the space industry? Well, if you think about it, it began during Yun's presidential election campaign when he promised to set up a new space body in Sacheon, South Gyeongsang province. So since the Yun administration took office in May, uh, if you think about what happened since then and now, uh, South Korea achieved two consecutive huge milestones last year mm. with the Nuri rocket's successful launch in June and the Korean lunar orbiter Hanuri's uh, mission stably being carried out above the moon. I think that really played a big part in government taking a step further, and it saw space as a new opening for the country's opportunities in the future. And so officials and experts are saying space technology is not about science anymore. It's more about it's critical to the survival of the state as we look at uh, what will happen from now. For, for instance, uh, if we're talking about military, we won't be able to be like, hey, uh, can we borrow your satellites for this and that in the future now that we have our own space technology? Mm. Space leaders like other countries, uh, the U.S., the EU, Russia, China, India, and Japan, are not going to uh, let us, you know, use their technology for our space development anymore. So we have to do it on our own. And I think President Yoon really thinks space is going to be our next uh, maybe semiconductor, but it's even bigger than that. So we, as a country, are trying to uh, play the catch-up game in the space race, but also trying to be, you know, not too behind in the race. Sure. Uh, of course, last year's launch of uh, Nuri and Tanuri, they were two very uh, feel-good stories uh, among the headlines uh, last mm-hmm. year. Uh, what specific goals or projects are there at the moment? Are there any yet? Uh, what does the government aim to achieve? So right now at the moment, uh, the specific goals would, let's say, targeted timelines. We have our president used pledges in November that he, when he said South Korea will develop a launch vehicle that can fly to the moon in the next five years, uh, land on the moon in 2032, and land on Mars in 2045. 
And in December, the National Space Committee adopted the fourth basic plan for space development, uh, which included, which of course included UN's space balls and five long-term space missions. So the first is to uh, expand space exploration capabilities, like so that we can uh, explore the moon and maybe other spaces. And the second is to develop uh, space transportation technology, so like advancing uh, launch vehicles and carrying out more launch missions over the next uh, 5 to 20 years. Third is to foster the country's space industry to create more space-related businesses and make our country's space ecosystem grow so that more companies and startups can take part in the space business. Hmm. The fourth is to have a space security that would be about having a ton of satellites and surveillance systems up in space to protect our own country and for our national security. And lastly and fifth, uh, Korea will continue to carry out scientific research of space. So ambitious goals indeed culminating in Mars in 2045. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can we also go into some details of how the new space agency will operate? Because you said it was uh, the law was uh, very unique. Officials have said that the measure would involve a number of exemptions from regulations usually put on government uh, organizations. Can you expand on that? Exactly. It was rather pretty shocking to actually see the law. Uh, because there are a number of uh, unprecedented regulations for a public organization. So uh, I'm going to begin with the proportion of term-based public officials, which will have no limits, unlike the current regulation that says the proportion of term-based public officials at a government body cannot exceed 20%. Now, the special law gives uh, no limit, so they could be they could have maybe 80 or Uh, 90% of its employees are going to be term-based public officials. Another feature is that the law gives the KSAs have the authority to determine the level of salaries for each individual. And the preparatory office actually held a press conference two weeks ago, and they said uh, the KSAA workers could be offered what NASA workers earn, which would be over $150 a year. So that's pretty uh, unseen for Mm. public officials here in Korea. Mm. Now, another thing would be a hiring process. So the current employment regulation requires open recruitment by notice for public bodies. Instead, the new space body will be able to go out and actually scout talented space professionals if necessary. And another thing is that uh, the KSA will be able to complete the administrative process for making organizational shifts in in a week or less. Now, that's a lot quicker than the existing policy that requires at least three months or longer to right. make such a change. Mm. Now, all this they're saying is to attract and secure top space experts while giving a ton of leeway for the space body. Right. Uh, But the plans aren't going down uh, all smoothly. First, there's this debate about where the new agency will be located. Uh, You mentioned President Yoon's uh, pledge uh, previously about uh, 
creating a, a space agency at uh, Sachan in South Gyeongsang province. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But experts are voicing their preference for Sejong City. What's mm-hmm. the issue here? Well, as, my, as, as you just mentioned, it was President Yoon who's pushing for building the new space agency in Sachan, South Gyeongsang province. But uh, according to a recent report by the Science and Technology Policy Institute, 67% of space experts said Hejon or Sejong would be more suitable for the establishment of the new space body. Now, only 8% chose President Yoon's pick, Sacheon. But if you look deeper, uh, government officials preferred Sejong, while other respondents, such as those uh, uh, space professors and uh, space industry officials, said mm. the location of the space body is not all that important to be uh, it's not that important factor to be taken into account mm. i think that is because um government officials they're mostly located in sejong right now because the ministry of science and ict is in sejong right now now i personally talked to some of the uh, public officials working in the space division at the ministry of science and ict and they said uh, what they're saying is that They've already set up, you know, their families and their uh, houses in Sejong, but they're now concerned about having to move to Sacheon mm. once the space body is set up there. Mm. So I think that's the issue. Okay. And also, while President Yoon Song yeol has previously said that the space economy will open up infinite opportunities, there are also concerns being expressed among experts and those in the, uh, and those in the field um, about this a new plan. What criticisms mm-hmm. are there at the moment? Well, some are saying that setting up a space body under the Ministry of Science and ICT is not doing enough to really develop the space sector because what they're saying is they want, uh, I think, as for the Korean NASA to be actually like the NASA, it would, it should have more authority than just uh, an administration under the Ministry of Science. They're calling for actually all-out efforts from not only the science ministry, but also from the Ministry of Trade and Industry and Energy and the Ministry of Defense, so that it could have maybe similar level of authority as other ministries. They're also saying the Korean version of NASA is not like the real NASA because the U.S. space body is led by experts who are public officials at the same time. Unlike the KSA is planning to scout outside experts on term basis. Hmm. Okay, well, the announcement came last week and the starting gun has been fired on this agency anyway. But uh, (laughs) what steps remain? Uh, Where are we in terms of the process of establishing this uh, new space agency? And do you think uh, this law will be passed by the National Assembly as well? Well, we have about 10 more days until the end of what we call the advanced publication of legislation for the special law. So that means anyone with a valid Korean phone number can submit their opinions about the law on the website of the Ministry of Government Legislation until March 17th, that is next Friday. Once that's done, the ministry will work on uh, sub-articles of the law and more specific details about the law. And the plan of the preparatory office is to send the law or submit the law to the National Assembly, maybe by uh, uh, 
by the end of this month or April to obtain approval by the parliament before the end of the first half and establish the new space body before the year end. Now, uh, if you ask me how realistic is it for the law to be passed by the National Assembly within this year, well, well, as we all know, the main opposition Democratic Party holds 169 of the 300 seats, so that's over a majority. Mm. The, the ruling People Power Party will need their opponents' help. And the thing is, a report actually came out this afternoon that said the Democratic Party is actually planning on submitting a new law that will go directly against establishing a new space body. Mm. According to the report, the Democratic Party will propose a law that uh, plans to set up a new strategic office under the existing National Space Committee instead of setting up a whole new space body. Mm. So with this already going on, when the law has not even been handed over to the National Assembly, um, I personally think it will be a bumpy road until they can sure. reach a resolution. In other words, um, I think it might sure. be a bit difficult to imagine the establishment of the Korean version of NASA before the end of this year. So many obstacles to overcome, but the Yoon administration does seem very keen on pushing uh, the nation's space mm-hmm. program forward. Uh, we'll leave it there. We've been speaking to reporter Kan hyung from the Korea Herald. Thank you once again for your time today. Thanks again. It's a pleasure. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 0.73 points, or 0.03% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,463.35. The tech-heavy Kosdaq, meanwhile, fell, losing 0.75 points, or 0.09%, to close at 815.76. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 2.51 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,299.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have our contributor joining us in the studio, Diane Yu. Dan, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Dango. It's good to see you, too. Okay, so what stories do you have for us today? First, we'll talk about the Seoul city government's plan to prevent suicide attempts on bridges along the Han River. Next, we'll go over a heroic story of a firefighter who died while on duty. And finally, we'll get the latest updates on South Korean rapper Ravi, who was charged with attempting to evade military service. Well, let's start with that first story then. What can you tell us? The number of people attempting to take their own lives from bridges over the Han River sharply increased in the past year. Such an increase was mainly seen among younger people. According to government data, suicide was the number one cause of death among those in their 10s, 20s and 30s. In order to improve the situation, the Seoul metropolitan government is seeking to raise the height of the railings to a maximum of 1.65 metres. Yes, of course, suicide is a tragically a long-standing issue in Korean society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're saying the number of people who are attempting to take their lives off bridges has increased in the past year. Right. How many incidents are we talking about? 
Well, according to a report by the National Fire Agency on Tuesday, the number of firefighters dispatched to save civilians attempting suicides in 2022 was 1,000. This is a 40% increase from the previous year. In particular, in addition to notorious locations with high accessibility such as the Bapu, Hangang, and Yanghua bridges, the number of such attempts also increased for bridges that were previously considered less accessible. For example, Cheongdam Bridge, where the average number of police officers dispatched was less than two, rose to 10 last year, while Pampu and Tongjak bridges, which had around 30 suicide attempts a year, doubled to 68 and 64 last year, respectively. Although the number of such incidents has increased, fortunately, rescue and survival rates have also risen, with the rescue rate reaching 99.6%. Oh, wow. So in almost all cases, people survive. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, one encouraging statistic, at least. Right. Uh, But still, preventing such attempts in the first place is what the authorities are looking to do. Can you tell us more about the city's plan then to raise the railings? Mm -hmm. Following the Mapu and Hangang bridges, the Seoul Metropolitan Government plans to raise the handrails on the Hannam, Yanghua and Chamsil bridges. Mapu Bridge is already equipped with steel fences and revolving handrails to make it difficult for people to climb on. An official from the Seoul Metropolitan Government said that the city plans to raise the railings and prevent suicide attempts by placing appropriate installations according to the characteristics of each bridge on the Han River. Yes, hopefully they will help prevent such incidents uh, moving forward. Right. Let's uh, move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? Firefighters are the first responders and rescuers when there's a hazardous fire that threatens life. Uh, They're regarded as heroes because they do their best to leave no one behind, even if it puts them at risk of dying. And tragically, just on Monday, that's exactly what happened. A fire broke out in a house in Kimjae City, North Cheolla Province, killing two people, including firefighter Song Gong-il. What's more devastating is that Song, who passed during the rescue, joined Kimjae Fire Station's Kimsan 119 Safety Center center less than a year ago. Yes, that is very sad to hear indeed. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through what happened exactly? A fire broke out in a house at around 8.30 on Monday evening. The blaze was extinguished after about an hour and 20 minutes, but the 30-year-old firefighter Song Gong-il and a man in his 70s living in the house were found in cardiac arrest and taken to the hospital. They both sadly passed away. Song went into the house after hearing a woman who escaped from the house full of black smoke and flames say that someone else was inside. But the fire spread fast and neither of them were able to make it. The police believe that the fire spread to the house from garbage that was burning in the yard, but plans to investigate the exact cause through forensic examination at the scene. I believe that after hearing this news, uh, President Yoon Sang-yeol made a statement as well, right? That's correct. After hearing about the incident, President Yoon said that he is in deep sorrow and that his heart goes out to the deceased and his family. According to the spokesperson for the president's office, Lee Do-un, the president urged his government to not only do its best to show respect for the deceased, but also come up with preemptive measures so that such unfortunate incidents do not happen again. The fire department is planning to set up a memorial altar for songs so that people can pay their respects. Yes, perhaps they will need to look into if there was any sort of oversight in how they handled the incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, it was incredibly brave of him and our thoughts go out to his family as well. Right. Let's continue on to our final story. What else has been trending today? 
two months ago on January 13th, we talked about how Ravi of the boy band Vix has been charged with violating the Military Service Act and the arrest warrant for the rapper who is suspected of attempting to evade military service by forging an epilepsy diagnosis through a so-called military service broker has been dismissed. According to the Seoul Southern District Court on Monday, the judge decided that it is difficult to determine that the suspect is at risk of running away or destroying evidence. They added that as Ravi admitted to the charge, the arrest warrant, which was requested on March 2nd, was unnecessary. Right, so just the request for the arrest warrant that has been dismissed. Uh, the investigation of the case is still being conducted, mm-hmm. uh, but the rapper will not be detained during that period. Right. Uh, but he will have to appear for court. Uh, for those who can't recall what happened in January, could you remind us of how Ravi got charged? So Ravi stepped down as a regular member of the KBS Entertainment program One Night Two Days back in May of last year when he was about to enlist. Then five months later in October, he began supplementary service doing social work. At the time, the rapper explained that his health was the reason for the supplementary service. However, the prosecution suspected that Ravi was exempted from active duty through an illegal broker. In the process of investigating the mobile phone of a military service broker, the prosecution found out that uh, the circumstances in which Ravi asked for military service-related counseling and received advice, and related documents were also found. The broker had Ravi falsely diagnosed with epilepsy at a designated hospital, and based on this, he was exempted from enlisting in the military and posted to supplementary service. Has Ravi's representatives given any comment on the court's decision? Well, the rap- rapper's agency, Groovland, said, quote, We are sincerely cooperating with the investigation process. We ask for your understanding that we cannot provide details at this stage, end quote. The agency also added that it will provide more details later. So we'll have to wait and see how this all turns out. OK, we'll leave it there for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Next, we have Touch Basin's Hull, and our guest this week is a journalist and the former Hull correspondent for the AFP news agency. In 2019, her coverage of South Korea's Me Too movement was shortlisted for the Editorial Excellence Award by the Society of Publishers in Asia. And her new book on South Korea's feminist movement, called Flowers of Fire, has now been published. It hit shelves today, in fact, a day ahead of International Women's Day. I'm glad to say that journalist Hawan Chung joins us via video call now. Ms. Chung, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, well, congratulations on having your new book published today. How are you feeling? I'm sure uh, you must be excited. I'm very excited. I'm feeling a little nervous, uh, but I'm mostly very happy to be able to tell this story to of gender issues in South Korea to our uh, global audience, which is, I think this is a really important issue. And I'm really glad that I can finally uh, get this book out to the world. Sure, we'll talk a bit more about the book in a second. But uh, I wanted to talk first about your personal story a little bit. Uh, can you tell us about your journey as a reporter? How did you become a journalist? Sure. I. Uh... I was first, I was born and raised in South Korea and growing up 
I was kind of a bookish nerdy kid who wanted to become a writer one day in one way or another, like whether it would be a fiction writer or a journalist. And so I just had this vague idea that I want to become a newspaper reporter, journalist one day. And writing in English, which is not my mother language, hadn't really come across my mind until I went to college and spent a few months in the U.S. to learn my English. Mm. And there I kind of realized that if I write in English, then my writing can actually reach uh, far more people around the world, far bigger audience for my writing. So I decided to write in English from then on. And after graduating from college, I went to a, a journalism school in the U.S. Afterwards, I got a job as a reporter for... Korea Jungan Daily, which is one of the three English language newspapers in South Korea. Mm. And after three years there, I went on to become a Seoul correspondent for the AFP news agency. And there for the following decade, I wrote basically everything about South Korea for our global audience. And later years, I uh, very closely followed the women's rights issues in South Korea. I quit uh, the AFP to focus on writing a book about uh, this issue. Right. You covered all sorts of issues from uh, North Korea and many other stories over the years. Uh, but it, it, it seems that reporting on gender issues uh, in Korea has become a particular passion for you. Uh, what drew you to this issue and how have you found reporting on it over the years? Oh, before we go into that, I'd like to just mention this uh, long-running joke among some of the uh, Seoul-based foreign correspondents mm. that uh, 50% of what we do as a journalist involves North Korea. <laughs> right, you know, of course, yes. North Korea refugees, North Korea's uh, nuclear programs, missile tests, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the, the other 20% about Samsung slash technologies slash smartphones and the other 20 percent about you know basically k-pop or south korea's pop culture in general mm. and the the, the, the remaining 10 percent about south korean politics economy social issues so i mean obviously this is an exaggerated statement but in fact there's a little bit of truth in that that the uh, global conversations about or news about south korea have been dominated by this very narrow range of topics like the uh, geopolitics with North Korea, mm. pop culture, you know, South Korea's pop culture, or technology like Samsung. But if you look at the uh, situation on the ground and see the lives of ordinary South Koreans on the ground, then really I think it's the agenda is a really key topic that has dominated the conversations among so many ordinary South Koreans, like in whether it's uh, in the school classrooms, college campuses, government offices, corporate offices, so, or internet chat rooms, news media, mm. or even over the family dinner tables, and that was partly uh, uh, that was partly because of this uh, very strong wave of feminist movement that has swept South Korea since uh, I'll say since late 2010s. And that also created a, a quite significant shift in the country's gender dynamics for the last few years. You know, we have, for those who don't know about the situation very well, 
you know, South Korea had a very strong wave of Me Too movement mm. uh, in 2018 onward. And at some point, we also have a very strong brand of activism against what is normally widely called digital sex crimes, like uh, the tech-based sexual abuse of people uh, based on like you know high-tech fears like smartphones or or secret cameras sure. mounted on the uh, AI items. Uh, and at some point back in 2018, we had tens of thousands of women taken to the streets for months to call for a stronger, a tougher punishment against crimes like this. And we also had the uh, very successful campaign to decriminalize abortion and putting an end to the, uh, the decades-long uh, abortion ban. And I just thought that back then, I just thought that it was a pretty remarkable development, especially considering South Korea, you know, despite the, uh, all the uh, economic, technological, and cultural advances the country has achieved for the last few decades, mm. the country still remains a pretty patriarchal place with one of the worst records of women's status in society in the industrialized world. Like, for instance, the country has uh, reported the uh, biggest gender pay gap among the OECD member nations every single year for the past 27 years since the year it joined the, uh, this club of economically advanced countries. The country was, has also been ranked at the bottom of the, uh, the so-called glass ceiling index mm. that shows how tough it is to be a working woman in a certain country. Sure. Every single year since the, uh, this, uh, the Economist magazine created this annual, in, uh, annual index uh, 10 years ago. Uh, we also have this... Uh, a uh, pretty patriarchal family, uh, the family customs that puts the uh, disproportionate burden of uh, domestic responsibilities on women mm. to the point that even women who are the family breadwinners and whose husbands stay at home spend more time on such domestic responsibilities like childcare than their stay-at-home husbands. So considering all of that, I just thought that this wave of feminist movement for the last few years is a really very interesting and very fascinating story. And especially for those who see, you know, South Korea through these lenses of the geopolitics with North Korea or, right. you know, pop culture. I just thought that, you know, stories about these gender issues in South Korea could really help them understand better the lives of ordinary South Koreans, mm. especially women, and their hopes and struggles for gender uh, equality, especially in this day and age of global era of Me Too, when many women, not just in South Korea, but women around the world, against the uh, sexism or gender violence they experience in their everyday lives. Right, and all this led to your book, Flowers of Fire, mm -hmm published today, March 7th, and it comes just a day ahead of International Women's Day. Uh, the subheading for the book is the inside mm -hmm. story of South Korea's feminist movement and what it means for women's right worldwide. I find that second part of that title, that subheading, interesting as well. Uh, the the uh, inside story of feminist movement and what it means for the women's rights worldwide. Obviously, without giving too much away, what aspects of that side... Uh, did you want to talk about how you connect that, the Korean uh, feminist movement, to the global women's rights movement? Sure. Uh, one of the uh, interesting things that happened to me back in uh, late 2010s, while I was covering South Korea's Me Too movement or any other 
women's rights issues is that uh, a lot of women of South Korea, like women in the US, Mexico, Spain, China, they all reached out to me on social media or by, uh, by email, like asking questions like, uh, what's going on in South Korea? Why is South Korea's Me Too movement so big? Or why is, what is this thing called the digital sex crimes? And why are so many women in the country are so mad about it? Is there any book I can read? And later I kind of realized that a lot of them are actually K-pop fans or mm. fans of the South Korean pop culture whose interest in South Korea obviously went beyond their favorite K-pop stars or uh, their favorite K-dramas. And there was a desire or a certain, you know, groundswell of desire among some of these uh, fans of South Korean pop culture that they want to know more about the country, not just their, you know, not, not just the uh, pop culture products they consume, but the uh, wider social issues in South Korea that are somehow reflected in the pop culture products they consume, whether that is the songs, K-pop songs or K-dramas, or even, you know, the real life events like, um, you know, for instance, Burning Sun scandal back in 2017 that involved a lot of K-pop stars. And these women outside the country who had this had this interest about pop culture in South Korea, uh, somehow I noticed that they also wanted that there was this desire of to get to know about what the women in South Korea are going through and what they are fighting against. Mm. And you think about it, the demographics of this uh, K-pop fans outside Korea, they are, they are also, a lot of them are young women who are grappling with say sexism or gender violence in their own countries. And you know, it, it looks like they not only wanted to know more about the South Korean society, but perhaps they wanted to kind of find inspiration from what the, the fights of these South Korean women and find the inspirations for their own fights at home. So I just thought that, that maybe I can make a small contribution to you know help these women better understand South Korea. And also there's another reason is that the another reason I had is that the um, while I was covering these women's rights issues in Korea mm. and share some of my stories on social media, mm. one of the responses I got often from let's say men in the Western countries that the uh, uh, the comment like something in effect of like um, wow I didn't know feminism existed in South Korea mm. or in Asia mm. or I. Asian women are, you know, nice and gentle and sort of unspoiled by feminism, like feminists in my own countries. And I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, the women in South Korea or I'm pretty sure Asia in general, they have been fighting for all these years, sure. perhaps against the boss, against the women in Western countries. But still, this uh, in a lot of Western countries, um, very old stereotypes of uh, there seem to be uh, this very old stereotypes about Asian women being say submissive, compliant, mm. or quiet people who quite silently suffer under you know patriarchal systems right, right. and with little voice of their own. Right. And even you know the women in the West who call themselves feminists don't seem to know much about what is going on in this. Uh, in Asia, like for instance, South Korea's the Me Too movement is uh, arguably the the biggest and most sure. robust in Asia. I think, but the stories like this seem to be very little known uh, outside the outside the country. So I was I kind of hoped that my perhaps my book can make a small contribution to 
make South Korea's feminist movement kind of on the map and, you know, help debunk this uh, very old fantasy view of the stereotypes <laughs> about women being so, you know, submissive and, sure. you know, self-sacrificing creatures. It sounds like an absolutely fascinating read. I'm sure uh, our listeners uh, will really get something out of it. Uh, finally, I understand you completed this book last year, uh, but then in year the year 2023, this year, what would you say are perhaps the uh, biggest issues uh, regarding uh, gender equality in Korea? Uh, what remains? What What's the road ahead look like? Well, it's, uh, you know, it was back in 2018 when I first set out to write this book. And obviously a lot has changed in South Korea in the following years. And, you know, this whole outburst of uh, women's rights activism for the last few years uh, created the, the triggered kind of a cultural pushback by a lot of people, a lot of men, who thought that these women have gone too far and now they are men are the victims of reverse discrimination. And that kind of anti-feminist sentiment kind of reached this peak in you know, in the last year's presidential election, when President Yoon Suk-yeol rose to power, partly on an uh, openly mm. misogynistic platform, and what have, what we have seen so far for the past year is uh, this barrage of attacks on feminism or any or this the, the whole concept of gender equality. Like for instance. For the past year, we have seen the government deciding to remove the term gender equality from school textbooks. And the government also, say, uh, cut fundings for uh, sure. a youth program to find uh, everyday sexism. Mm. And when there was a, when there was a protest, against, uh, protest from the, uh, the participants of that program, the then floor leader of Yoon's party mm, sure. famously said, find gender equality and feminism so important than your own time and money. So I think what has happened for the last few years is uh, deeply worrying, considering South Korea still has, uh, despite all the uh, feminist activism for the last few years, the country still has sure. a very bad record the, uh, the women's status in workplaces and society in general. Sure. And it can send a pretty dangerous message to the individuals and institutions around the country that right. the gender equality of value that right. is uh, enshrined in the country's constitution is no longer important and you could have a sort of a chilling impact right. to the, uh, the the efforts to find gender, gender inequality in the country on the institutional level yeah. as well as in the individual level. Well, it sounds like possibly there could be a book two in the future as well. There's certainly a long road to go. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Congratulations on the book. Once again, it's called Flowers of Fire. And we've been speaking to the author, journalist, Hawan Chung. We'll leave it there. Ms. Chung, thank you once again for sharing your time with us. Thank you for having me. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explorer Korea.
And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea 24. We continue on now to our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features and reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us in the studio now. Richard, hello. Hello. Yes, it's good to see you, Richard. So what do you have for us today? Well, we have some movie-related news from E. Goody's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times. Director Hwan Dong-hyuk's heartfelt comedy film Miss Granny is getting its own series adaptation. For our listeners who may feel like they recognize the director's name, he is the person who created the hugely popular Squid Game. Wow, okay. So before we talk about this uh, new series adaptation, can you brief us first the background of this movie, Miss Granny? Sure. The film was released in 2014. It follows an elderly woman in her 70s who has her picture taken and then finds herself in the body of a 20-year-old. She uses this new identity to embark on a quest for happiness. This movie was hugely popular. The article mentions that it garnered around 8.6 million ticket sales. Also, this will not be the first adaptation, as it has already been remade in several countries, such as Vietnam, China, India and Indonesia. Right, so it's a bit of a body swap comedy or a wish-fulfillment body swap comedy, something like the opposite of the Tom Hanks film Big, I would say. (laughs) Right. Uh, but yes, it's very different from Squid Game indeed. <laughs> uh, will Hwang Dong-yuk be directing this series? He will not. The director is Park Yong-soon, who previously directed the 2018 thriller series Secret Mother and the 2016 series Wanted. We also know who will star in the series, and that is the actress Jung Ji-so. Our listeners may know her from a number of popular shows and movies such as Parasite. The series will begin filming this year, and it will be interesting to see if it can become a popular hit like the movie yes but as we said don't expect something like a squid game or (laughs) parasite despite the names of those involved but yes it sounds like fun indeed okay let's move on to our second story what do you have for us next we'll head to Hwan Dong-hee's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald it's about the four Korean picture books that received special mentions at the Bologna Ragazzi Award. Yes, this is an award that we've mentioned on the show uh, several times over the past couple of years. It is. But let me explain what it is for those who may not know. The award is regarded as the most illustrious prize for children's literature and is held during the Bologna Children's Book Fair, which is the world's largest children's book expo. Let me also tell you about a couple of the four Korean books that got special mentions. First, we have Moving Away by E. G. Yun. The article says that the book invites the reader to follow a magnified ant trail where a child is playing. It got a special mention in the fiction category. The next book received a special mention in the comic subcategory. Okay, and what book is that? It's called The Shadow Theatre and was written and illustrated by Kim Gyu-ah. The the jury said that the soft tones of Kim's coloured pencils lure the reader unsuspectingly. So, no winners this year, unfortunately, but a special mention is still a good achievement. Hmm. You can find out about the other two Korean books in the article. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's all for our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.